years ago, I, the British Council uh, sent me to Calcutta, and my host took me up to the roof and said to me, do you see the tree across the street? And I said, yes. And he said, the British hanged my grandfather from that tree. <laughs> Being British, I, I knew what to say. I said, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> and he said, oh no, it is things like this that bring us together. And that was the moment that I realized I absolutely have no clue how intercultural relations <laughs> operate. And in fact, although I've been teaching American studies for years, I actually have no idea how America operates either, as, as will become apparent. Uh, when I first went to America, you are bizarre people, you Americans. You, you will heat your rooms in winter to a temperature that would force you to turn the air conditioner on if it was summer. So I arrived in January, an overheated room, uh, wanted to open the window, screw it up because of an air conditioner. I'm British, I understand. Go to a drawer, get a knife, undo the screws, open the window, breathe in, and yes, the air conditioner dropped five floors from the window. And in a way, as a teacher of American studies, that's what I've been doing ever since. I've been dropping an air conditioner out of the window. It is, there's so much I don't, uh, this has actually nothing to do with what I'm talking about. There's uh, so, so much for the 20 minutes. I, please, you go, to the, you go to the Midwest, and outside every small town, there are two signs. One sign gives you the population, and the other gives you the height above sea level. In Kansas? There hasn't been sea in Kansas for millions of years. Or if you're a creationist, since Thursday. <laughs> there, there are, I, I, I went, <laughs> oh dear. perhaps I won't bother. There, I, I, I went to Providence, Rhode Island. There was a sign that said, semi-topless bar. I have lain awake many a night since. You go to a family hotel in this country. I mean, a decent family hotel. Two things you're guaranteed to find, a Gideon Bible and pornography on the television. 112 Gideon Bibles are placed per minute in, this, in the United States of America. And 50% of people who go to those hotels can turn on the pornography. So I said 92% this morning believe in God. Why do so many go to church? To confess having seen. <laughs> I, want to, uh, I want to start with a serious question. Can we look with equanimity on a country whose dominant economic, military, and political position leads to its imposition of its own ideas of democracy and bureaucratic process on other countries, its export of its language, its values, and its products, material and cultural. I'm talking, of course, about Great Britain in the 18th and 19th centuries, when the United States bewailed the fact that their fledgling culture was being overwhelmed by British imports. But I could have been talking about Spain or Portugal, France or Germany, 
uh, Holland or Belgium. I could have been talking about Islam in the 15th century. I could have been talking about the classical world of Greece or Rome, and what did the Romans ever do for us? And of course, American history is, as uh, we have been implying, imperial, even if that's not a term that's much loved in America. And the fact is that as these uh, empires collapsed, uh, so something was left behind in the way that a retreating glacier leaves rocks, evidence of the pressure that they once exerted. Uh, there are various reasons why that metaphor is not appropriate. Cultural influence is no longer primarily a product of uh, military conquest, nor are cultural products rocks. They're organic, and a defining characteristic of the organic is that it adapts. What, though, is the nature of cultural and national identity, this thing to which I've already confessed I absolutely have a clue. Think for a moment of a British officer in India in the 19th century. He's sitting on the veranda of a bungalow, drinking gin and tonic, the quintessentially British drink, which I first was introduced to in Brazil on a British council trip. Except that the gin would probably have come from Holland, the tonic would have been the invention of a man called Schweppes, who came from Switzerland, it was popular in India because of the added quinine, which offers protection against malaria. Still contains that quinine, although there's not much malaria in Windsor Great Park. Uh, but I intend to take a precaution later on uh, this evening. The slice of lemon probably came from the West Indies, and the ice may well have come from the ponds of New England because they transported ice in sawdust in ships from New England. Oh, and the word bungalow is Indian, and the word veranda is Portuguese. So what's British about that picture? Oh yeah, and Schweppes opened a factory in Brooklyn in 1884 and today is owned by Coca-Cola. Even though the ads about Schweppes over the years were trying to show an upper-class British figure. Well, that's the past and we know they do things differently there. So let's think of a contemporary American. He sits in his Brooks Brothers shirt, wears jeans, is trying to decide between a Dr. Pepper and a 7-Up while eating kettle chips. And then he browses through the yellow pages before setting them aside to read a random house book bought in Barnes and Noble. Then he finishes off by choosing between a Haagen-Dazs ice cream or one from Ben and Jerry's. Um, because he believes in the Second Amendment, he's packing a Smith and Wesson revolver. He's a modern American, except that Brooks Brothers is not only designed to be reminiscent of upper class England, it's owned by the British as are Kettle Chips, Dr. Pepper, 7-Up, and Yellow Pages. Random House, meanwhile, is owned, along with Bantam, Dell, Knopf, and Barnes and & Noble, by a German company. Hagen Gattas, though created by an American to sound Scandinavian for some reason, is owned by an Anglo-Dutch company, as is Ben & Jerry's, and incidentally, as are Popsicles. His jeans, of course, which we probably think of as one of America's principal gifts to the world, will have been made in China, and denim trousers, anyway, were worn in 17th century England using cloth from France from a town called Nîmes, de Nîmes. <laughs> Levi Strauss's contribution was the rivets. That's the American contribution to jeans. And incidentally, this American shoes will not have been American because 90% of footwear in the United States comes from overseas, and if he has a laptop, there's a 60% chance that came from overseas. Is the question of who owns America entirely distinct from what America 
is? Does it control its own destiny, let alone the destiny of others? At the moment, 53% of the national debt of the United States is owned by foreigners, three of the big ones being Japan, China, and the United Kingdom. So if you're American in this room, I own you. But you can repay the debt after this uh, in gin and tonic. But if we're talking about popular culture contributions, I suppose we have to acknowledge the American identity of fast food, the food that is currently gifting the world type 2 diabetes. And I'm talking, of course, as somebody already has, of hamburgers, hot dogs, and pizzas. Except the clue is in the language. The hamburger actually dates back to Genghis Khan, by way later of Germany. As the name implies, it came to America, brought in on the ships of the Hamburg-America line. Hot dogs, also known as wieners or frankfurters, came, of course, from Germany. Indeed, in 1987, Frankfurt celebrated the 500th anniversary of the hot dog. Although the Austrians, particularly the Viennese, also lay claim, hence the wiener from Vienna. Uh, they became available in America only at the end of the 19th century. And pizza goes back to the days of the Persian Empire and was described by Cato as flat rounds of dough dressed with olive oil, herbs and honey, baked on stone. Pizza was found at Pompeii. I think I've eaten some of it. <laughs> and ice cream? Uh, well, how American can you get? Except, no, of course not. Ice cream came from China and was regularly served in the courts of Europe. Soft ice cream was a British invention. Indeed, one person who worked on refinement of this technology later went into another line of business. Her name was Margaret Thatcher. I wish she'd stayed with the soft ice cream. <laughs> Meanwhile, in England, we eat, as you did this morning, the great British breakfast with orange juice from America, cereals invented in America by Seventh-day Adventists, because that's where cereals came from. We eat eggs, which may have come from Poland, bacon from Denmark, tomatoes in Spain, baked beans from a company owned by Senator John Kerry's wife, beans which are not available in that form in the United States, and we follow it with coffee from Colombia, and we call that the Great British Breakfast. Well, at least we've exported something genuine, genuinely English to you, Arthur Treacher's Fish and Chips. Unfortunately, of course, Arthur Treacher is an American company, which is also responsible for that quintessential American product, the burrito, um, which probably puts you in the mind of another famous American fast food, which is taken as an American influence, Taco Bell. And the point of this culinary dog's dinner is to underline the fact that we manifestly live in a global world, but that our notion of the defining characteristics of individual countries is suspect. For many years, the only place you could buy an English muffin was in America. It was unknown in England. The French like to call us les roast beef, but the three favorite meals of the British are chicken tikka masala, spaghetti bolognese, and chili con carne. I'm not sure I believe that. <laughs> it is a national pastime to have an Indian, as it's called. <laughs> but chicken tikka masala doesn't come from India. It was invented in England. What a bizarre world we live in when we think we know who we are and what identity is and how cultural exchange works and, oh, it's American influence on Britain and so on. In a, I, I, 
There's a similarity between that and the way we're loyal to our football clubs, but it is entirely possible in this country to see a match between two Premier League English clubs in which not a single British player will be on the field and neither manager will be British. At the moment, only one Premier League club in this country is owned by the British. They're mostly owned by the Americans and Russian oligarchs. And the remaining club, Arsenal, is about to be owned by an American. Oh, and Arsenal, strictly speaking, isn't in Arsenal, and Chelsea is not in Chelsea. What do we make of a Russian-speaking taxi driver in New York with no English and a mental map of Omsk trying to find his way to Lincoln Center, declaring himself to be an American? And without satellite navigation, he would have no idea where he was. But I have to say, if we're talking about the impact of American culture, there was a period when American culture was very deliberately used as a weapon, as many of you will know, between 1949 and 1967, the CIA launched the culture wars. It set up dummy foundations, the most famous of which was the Farfield, and through the Congress for Cultural Freedom, fed money to individuals, uh, magazines, organizations. It, it fostered abstract expressionism. I, I, I find this case actually quite convincing. You're going to war with the Soviet Union, culturally. What is the preferred style of the Soviet Union? socialist realism. What do you counter it with? Abstract expressionism. Suddenly the abstract expressionists found themselves offered money to go to Europe, to have exhibitions, much to their bewilderment, one might say. They, um, they also sent the Boston Symphony Orchestra, was one of their favorite devices, but still. Um, they established 25 magazines. And these included, most famously in this country, Encounter magazine and Quadrant, encounter set up by the CIA and British intelligence, incidentally, but presenting itself as a cultural magazine. They had people in the Museum of Modern Art. They did their best to infiltrate Penn International. They used the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, along with the Whitney Trust, and they raided the Marshall Plan for money. They organized conferences and funded intellectuals to attend them, including Mary McCarthy and a whole host of others some of whom knew where the money was coming from, others didn't. This was all finally exposed by Ramparts magazine and the New York Times in 1967. The CIA was very successful. Now, of course, the uh, USIA and British Council do this openly, and that's the difference. Perhaps the decline of American studies in this country is a result of the fact that no agency is now putting money in, and if there's anyone from the CIA here, Please put it into American studies in, in Britain. Some 20 years ago, I proposed the notion of a superculture. Although I believe almost nothing that, that I wrote 20 years ago, I do actually believe this. Because what I meant by that is that there comes a time when a culture is so dominant that its cultural products are omnipresent and immediately available <coughs> for incorporation by other cultures. However, it's possible to draw down from that superculture without importing the values and cultural meanings originally attached to it in its host country. Just as foreign words are taken into a language and then required to conform to native pronunciation and grammar, so too with culture. In the immediate post-war world in Italy, for the first time, young women could go to dances unaccompanied. The music they heard there was Perry Como, 
In Italy, Pericomo is a revolutionary because they took it down into their own culture, remade it where it played its role in the cultural values of that society. If, if that didn't ha happen, how else could you explain the French love of Jerry Lewis and Nicky Rourke? They've been reinvented by the French, or French product is made sometimes to sound American, like uh, Johnny Hallyday, whose real name is uh, Jean-Philippe Smet. I think I would rather have Hallyday than that. Culture changes when it crosses boundaries. There used to be a program in this country called Upstairs, Downstairs, which was a kind of soap opera. It went to America and became high culture. It was presented on Masterpiece Theater, introduced by Alistair Cook, whose bones, incidentally, were themselves subsequently illegally exported, and someone wandering around has, has uh, his bones somewhere in their body, another cultural artifact moving between Britain, America, back to Britain again. There's been a historical tendency to confuse Americanization with modernization. The beginning of the 20th century, the Manhattan skyline, the embodiment of modernity, so whenever high-rises appeared, oh, we've been Americanized. Well, you couldn't have had high-rise without two American inventions, area air conditioning, and the elevator. But once those were invented, those buildings could go anywhere because they were independent of climate, which was the key thing. It didn't matter where they went. Today, do you look to America for the most exciting architecture? Um, I would suggest you, you look to Britain's Norman Foster, his Milau-Weider Bridge in France, the Reichstag in Berlin, Beijing's new international airport. It was, of course, not the Americans who were first into space. And when they landed on the moon, it was with German technology. Uh, the Americans didn't invent the jet engine or radar, or I have to say to the people who were showing their film earlier today, penicillin. Other countries also invented medicines. And in fact, we gave the United States the jet engine and radar during the war, which enabled the Americans after the war to establish their civil aviation industry, which dominated for many years actually with British inventions. That's the way culture works. You raid it, take down what you want, move it, move on in your own terms to make it what you want to do. It did invent, the United States, the supermarket. But does this any longer carry an American badge? Indeed, the supermarket is a veritable image of the global world as food is flown thousands of miles. It's a supreme example of the superculture. Few people know or care the origin of their food. They simply absorb it into their diet and their bodies. America did pioneer the pre-cooked meal, thus leading generations to stop cooking. But do we think of those as American, when the most popular ones are Chinese, Mexican, and Italian, and Indian? It was Jean Baudrillard who said that America was the original version of modernity, and that France was no more than a copy with subtitles. Lovely. I doubt that's any longer true. When Las Vegas imports the Eiffel Tower and Venetian canals, is there anyone who believes they are Europeanizing the desert? Any more than Tudor cottages, French chateaus, and Italian villas make Beverly Hills the embodiment of Europe. America is a postmodern culture. It's an immigrant culture whose master story is composed of many other stories. America is shorthand for complexity for variety, for heterogeneity. Even though we like to homogenize it, 
for political argument's sake. And of course, that is increasingly true of the world. Increasingly, people play more than one country. Time and again here, someone has said, well, I'm part English, I'm part American, a bit of German, whatever it is. This is so common. I, I judged the Singapore Literary Prize. The winner, who I have to admit came from my university, uh, a, a wonderfully funny comic novel set in New York, Singapore, and London, which depended on knowing all three cultures, which she did because she lived in all of them. Now, it used to be true of the rich that they moved around. Uh, that's no longer true. The poor are moving in large numbers, and they take with them their culture when they go there. When they come through on the lorries into this country, they're not just bringing themselves and little else in terms of money. They're bringing entire cultures with them, um, legally or illegally. I was explaining that the political parties getting ready for an election in Scotland are producing their pamphlets in Polish because suddenly they've got to appeal to the new Polish immigrants who've come in uh, as a result of the EU changes. Having invoked the French, however, I must confess that they are particularly sensitive when it comes to American influence, partly because of language. They're real bastards on language, I have to say. I mean, you know, the language of, um, of air, air traffic is English. And that's true even of French airliners. But when they land at Charles de Gaulle, ground control language is French, which led to a crash at Charles de Gaulle between two aircraft where the pilots were fluent in English but did not speak French. We're sensitive, or we used to be sensitive, just not this often. Uh, we used to be sensitive to uh, Americanization. I'll just hold it. And it's so much easier to say, someone who lives in one place, works in another, and travels to and fro between them every day. Uh, I do have my own sensitivities. I hate the intrusive like as in like I was like walking down the road, and like I, I, I bet, bet an American student a pound if they could go a minute without saying it. And, <laughs> and, and she said, like a course. <laughs> and I hate the rising inflection, you know, my name's John. And I think, well, if you don't know what your name is, what the hell are you? <laughs> it was uh, Jacques Chirac, who's been uh, invoked before, who accused the United States of spreading what he called a generalized underculture in the world. Unless you think that was a momentary lapse, he also said he didn't want European culture standardized or obliterated by American culture for economic reasons that have nothing to do with real culture, because we know where real culture comes from, France. Jacques Lang, Minister of Culture, called for a boycott of the Deauville Festival of American Film because it started being too successful. It was French pressure that led to the 1989 EU directive called Television Without Frontiers, which of course meant the reverse of what it seems to mean. It required EU states to reserve at least 51% of entertainment broadcast transmission time for programs of European origin. However, 82% of films shown in Europe are American, while 60% of European film distributors are American-owned. France requires that no more than 40% of films shown in France should be non-European. France, of course, meanwhile, gets its revenge by exporting French-speaking literary theorists to the United States via Yale University. Artaud, Baudrillard, Foucault, Lévi-Strauss, Bachelard, Derrida, destroying the careers of generations of graduate students. I have no idea what they're talking about. 
so that American academia increasingly interprets its own culture through French eyes, as it has done since the days of Tocqueville and Crave Kerr, while the values that America holds up to the world for emulation, of course, come from Enlightenment values enunciated originally in England and France by Locke and Montesquieu. So whose values are being imprinted on whom? What is an American? It's true that, I'll jump to me because there is time running out. One of the subtexts of what I've been saying, with a probably better break surface, is the question of national identity. We speak of America as though it were clearly identifiable and homogeneous, as though you could pin it down. If you've read Moby Dick, that's a novel about the impossibility of pinning it down, of harpooning it. There's a scene in there, if you remember, a gold doubloon with a mysterious symbol is nailed to the mask, and a black cabin boy um, conjugates a verb as people go up to it. I see, you see, he sees. It's a white whale, it's a tabula rasa on which people project. America isn't a place, it's a range of possibilities, and that, of course, is part of its truth. While in 1782, Kravka asked, what then is an American? In 2004, Samuel P. Huntington published, Who Are We? 222 years after Kravker, the question evidently remained unanswered. And there are more books published on American identity than on the identity of any other country. If that question had been so easily answerable, answered, you wouldn't carry coins saying a pluribus unum. You wouldn't require your children, as we were saying today, to chant their belief in one nation, indivisible, or as Arthur Miller heard it when he was a child, in a dirigible. You know, this wonderful image of all of America in a dirigible going, going overhead. Uh, if it was self-evident uh, what the content and meaning of America was, would an increasing number of states have passed legislation making English the official language? By 2040, it's been estimated 25% of America's population will be Hispanic. And to Samuel Huntington, this will spell the success of the reconquest of America by Mexico. Because it will be Mexican territory that they're reclaiming first. Will that leave things unchanged? No, he says. It will be two peoples with two cultures and two languages. As he said... There is no Americano dream. Mexican-Americans will share in that dream and in that society only if they dream in English. Kurt Vonnegut, who sadly died two days ago, recently said that the true heroes today are America's librarians. At a time when, one has to say, due process has been abandoned for some, when the United States has, as we know, sanctioned to torture, they, the librarians, have refused to inform on students as they were required to do under the Patriot Act. So they are officially, as a result of their refusal, not patriots. Uh, as it's explained to you, I've just finished a biography, or the first part of a biography on Arthur Miller. His passport, you will know, was withdrawn. He was sentenced to a year in prison for contempt of Congress for refusing to betray his friends. He was, in other words, and he was told he was, un-American. So were Kurt Vonnegut and Arthur Miller, in the context of this conference, anti-American, as they appeared to be being told that they were? 
Well, obviously, I don't think so. I think that they both believed in the Bill of Rights, and they both lived at times when they suspected that the administration perhaps did not. Both, incidentally, uh, were vociferously opposed to the Vietnam War, and last evening we were offered a rather benign version of America's uh, military actions, Kuwait, um, Bosnia, Kosovo, but pulling the camera back a little would have the Bay of Pigs, Vietnam, the bombing of Cambodia, the Contras, the invasions of uh, Grenada. Uh, Harold Pinto, who of course is possibly the most anti-American person on the planet, did propose a parlor game, which was to identify the right-wing military dictatorship between 1945 and the year 2000, which had not been supported by the United States. Now, I have to say, uh, I haven't devoted 40 years or so, or whatever, God, have I? to studying and teaching about America because I'm anti-American. Um, I haven't, like Michael, served as governor of the Second Air Division Memorial Trust, which commemorates the Americans who gave their lives in the Second World War because I'm anti-American. I haven't seen my daughter marry American and live in America because I'm anti-American. The truth is that, like Miller and Vonnegut, I reserve the right to criticize aspects of America's political culture uh, precisely because I care about America. I don't think it is the last hope of America, but I do think it is a primary hope of America. Perhaps I could just uh, end, because all this sounds a little bolshy, um, by saying something else. Without American cultural, without American intervention, the cultural life of Great Britain would have been profoundly impoverished. And I'm not just speaking of the American theater, which jump-started our own in the mid-1950s with Miller's and Williams plays and O'Neill's and all the rest of it, very important to us as they were, nor those novelists who inspired so many British novelists. Martin Amis without Saul Bellow is almost uh, unthinkable. But we would not have had, almost certainly not have had Shakespeare's birthplace, whither you are going shortly, because it's his birthday, shortly. The only reason we've got it there is P.T. Barnum tried to buy it and take it to New York. And only at that moment did they try and raise money to keep it. We would not, without Americans, have the Shakespeare Memorial Theater, the Swan or the Globe. A few miles from here is the place that several of us went to earlier today, which was Runnymede, site of Magna Carta, who I can't help but tell you one of its principal things. Uh, it is to do with habeas corpus, which is the very thing there's an argument going on with America about at the moment. But as the Sunday Times pointed out, and as we actually saw today, there is no commemorative plaque by the British to be found there. But there are a number of plaques by Americans to be found there. Um, I don't know where I'm, that worries me or not. A part of me feels, so what? We're laid back. We don't give a damn. I take certain bizarre pride in the fact that we're so relaxed about our identity that we don't know who we are. I mean, when I read those immigration forms, as you go into the United States, you know, your heart beginning to beat a little faster, thinking, what are the bastards going to do to me this time? <laughs> Aside from the fact that there is this wonderful line, which the Europeans will know, which says, are you a terrorist? <laughs> and then there are two boxes. One is yes, and one is no. 
I would strongly advise you to get that right. <laughs> I, I, I did actually ask, very foolishly, I asked an immigration official why it was there, and he said it because if they could not prove uh, the, the, the actual case, they would get you for perjury. <laughs> there's, something, there's something delightfully naive about that. I, I have to say, I once went into America, and he said, he looked at my passport, which in those days was a proper visa with B1, B2, and some bastard had crossed one of those out. And I didn't know whether it was the business or the other one. So when they say, are you here for business or pleasure, I froze. Because I didn't know which one was legitimate anymore. And so he said to me, uh, you haven't got a visa. And I said, yes, I think if you just look, look there. He says, no, he says, no, you haven't. And I said, well, what do we do? He said, well, Chris, which I have to say, I hate well, Chris, I tell you what, we take you outside, we go around the corner, and we shoot you. <laughs> Believe me, this was a few years ago and was a joke. <laughs> if he said it now, I wouldn't be that convinced. But back to what, the, what, the, what have the Romans done for us, what have the Americans done for us? J. Paul Getty gave 62.5 million to the National Gallery. Nearly 30% of individual donations to the Tate Modern, our culture, apparently, came from the United States. Colin Tweedy, Director of Arts and Business, which is a quango, which has, puts money into culture in this country, rather incautiously said, we see ourselves as the 51st state of the Union. The American government is effectively paying for many projects here. Jill Sackler, who is an American donor of a wing of the Royal Academy and a chairwoman of the Edinburgh Festival, said, these institutions sort of belong to the world. They're global. The president of the Royal Academy Trust said, our donors are Anglophiles who are sophisticated enough to see the art world as global. And this, then, is the world beyond superculture, in which we are invited to a global smorgasbord, from which we take whatever delicacy we choose and we incorporate it into our own lives and enrich them without asking where they came from. We use them in our own way. Today, you can buy Muslim hamburgers with halal meat and Muslim cola. Whose myth is it, anyway? <laughs>